Welcome to Shelf Logic, the official podcast of the Maricopa County Library District. Hello, my name is Shelley, and I'm a librarian with the Maricopa County Library District. Today, we're speaking with journalist and author Libby Copeland about her book, The Lost Family, How DNA Testing is Upending Who We Are, which was released in March of 2020 and is currently available from our library. This book is a collection of individual stories exploring the seismic impact of home DNA testing on the American family. You swab your cheek or spit into a vial, then send it away to a lab somewhere. Weeks later, you get a report that might tell you where your ancestors came from, or if you carry certain genetic risks. Or the report could reveal a long-buried family secret and upend your entire sense of identity. Soon. This lark becomes an obsession, an incessant desire to find answers to questions at the core of your being, like who am I and where did I come from? Welcome to the age of home genetic testing. In The Lost Family, journalist Libby Copeland investigates what happens when we embark on a vast social experiment with little understanding of the ramifications. Copeland explores the culture of genealogy buffs, the science of DNA, and the business of companies like Ancestry and 23andMe, all while tracing the story of one woman, her unusual results, and a relentless methodical drive for answers that becomes a thoroughly modern genetic detective story. The Lost Family delves into the many lives that have been irrevocably changed by home DNA tests, a technology that represents the end of family secrets. There are the adoptees who've used tests to find their birth parents, donor-conceived adults who suddenly discover they have more than 50 siblings, hundreds of thousands of Americans who discover their fathers aren't biologically related to them, a phenomenon so common it's now known as a non-paternity event, and individuals who are left to grapple with their conceptions of race and ethnicity when their true ancestral histories are discovered. Throughout all these accounts, Copeland explores the impulse toward genetic essentialism and raises the question of how much our genes should get to tell us about who we are. With more than 30 million people having undergone home DNA testing, the answer to that question is more important than ever. And as an award-winning journalist who writes about culture, science, and human behavior, Libby is the perfect person to explore this issue. A staff reporter and editor for the Washington Post for over a decade, she now writes from New York for publications including The Atlantic, Slate, New York Magazine, Smithsonian Magazine, The New York Times, The New Republic, Esquire, The Wall Street Journal, Fast Company, Glamour, and more. In recent years, she's chronicled the cultural and personal implications of at-home DNA testing, profiled Dave Grohl, told the deeply intimate story of a man who kept his wife's body at home after she died, explored the science of the wandering mind, chronicled how a woman's grassroots movement is changing how Americans view death, and delved into marketing topics as varied as the revival of Tiger Beat magazine, unmentionable bathroom products, and the artisanal beauty trend. For New York's The Cut, she conceived, assigned, and edited a fascinating series called The Lies We've Told. And as a staffer for the Washington Post, she wrote stories from the 2008 presidential trail, the 2006 Winter Olympics in Turin, and the 2005 Michael Jackson trial. Copeland has appeared on MSNBC, CNN, and NPR, and has been a speaker many times on writing and reporting. A 2010 Media Fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution, her work has been selected by The Long Reads, Long Form, and The Sunday Long Read. Today, Libby is joining us from her home in New York. So Libby, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure to have you. Oh, it's so nice to be here. Thank you for having me. Now, today, of course, we are talking about your book, The Lost Family, How DNA Testing is Upending Who We Are, which was published uh, by Abrams Press. Now, how did you come to write The Lost Family? I've been a journalist for about 22 years, and the human interest stories were always the ones that I loved writing. Um, you know, uh, ordinary people who find themselves in extraordinary circumstances and sort of the intimate forces that shape 
their identities and their decisions, their morals and their motivations, all those things were always fascinating to me. And, and because of that, I had moved more into science writing, um, you know, the social sciences, cognitive science, and then some hard science um, in the last few years. And then I was in conversation with one of my editors at the Washington Post, and we were talking about this, you know, this technology, recreational DNA testing. And recreational DNA testing is the term for DNA testing that takes place outside the context of, um, you know, a doctor's visit. It's often marketed as entertainment. You know, you can find out more about your ancestry. You can find out about your genetic relatives. Um, and we were, my editor and I were talking about the phenomenon where sometimes people test and they get, you know, a result that surprises them. Mm -hmm. They find out that they have unexpected relatives, that their family isn't what they thought. Maybe they're not genetically related to their dad, uh, or there's some reason why their, their roots are not what they understood them to be. And then we were interested in the like, what then, right? Like what happens when a technology unexpectedly intersects with the most intimate pieces of who you are, how you define yourself. It's really quite a profound um, journey for a lot of people. So I wrote this uh, story for the Washington Post about it, and I got this flood of reader email, hundreds of emails in the first few weeks after it ran. And um, they were people who were saying, you know, that was a great story and I really related to it, but now I want to tell you my story, right? Like my story is different and here's how it's played out for me over the last five years. And I just, I felt really privileged reading these stories because they were, they were so moving and they were, they were hitting people where we're all most vulnerable. You know, the ways that we define ourselves, questions about, you know, personal narrative, how you think about yourself. It's, it's incredibly, it's stuff that's really elemental, right, to, to yourself. And so these people were sharing these stories and I found them moving and I, I thought, gosh, um, and they represented such a wide swath of Americans and, and indeed people outside of America. They were from every demographic, you know, every age group, different communities. And I just thought, you know, this isn't really just the story of one group of people or a handful of folks. This is this is a big deal, right? This is something that's affecting many, many people. It's playing out on an individual level. It's playing out on a familial level, but really it represents also um, a seismic cultural change. And so I wanted to, in the book, I wanted to tell some of those human stories on, a, on an individual level and a familial level, but I also wanted to tell a broader um, cultural American story. Right. Really fascinating on so many different levels. And there are so many different amazing stories that you touch on in your book, but it's the story of Alice that you chose to frame uh, the lost family. Now, without going too much into things and spoiling the story, could you explain why you chose her and her quest uh, to set it as a window for home DNA testing? Yeah, Alice's story is remarkable. And, you know, the first reason I chose it is because it's such a darn good story. Right. You know, I wanted a story that would read like a novel, but be true. I wanted a story that would read like a whodunit, but a genetic, genetic, you know, whodunit and an existential whodunit. Mm -hmm. And her story does that because it's such a compelling you know, story filled with twists and turns and surprises. There's a lot of mystery to it. It takes her on a lengthy journey. Right. So it has all the kind of parts and pieces of. Um, of a really compelling thriller, basically, right? A thriller <laughs> about the genes. And I also loved her story because it contains a lot of other stories. So I'll, I'll back up and just give a bit of context. So Alice Collins Playbook is a woman, she's retired, she lives in Washington state. Um, and she's someone who got into her genealogy decades ago. And she took a DNA test in 2012, thinking it would help her with her genealogy, which is why a lot of people get into it. Um, she had what genealogists like to call a brick wall or multiple brick walls. Um, and she thought that, you know, finding out who her cousins were um, would help her break through and go for research further back. Um, but she knew who she was. You know, when you test, you're getting two pieces of information. You're getting genetic cousins, which are, you know, people who are um, your relatives who've also tested in the same company. They're going to show up as matching to you in the database. Um, mm -hmm. And the other thing you're looking for is, um, is your ethnicity estimate. 
what is called ethnicity estimate. Um, it's your genetic ancestry, and it's basically a pie chart. It's this circle that shows you where the various branches on your family tree come from, um, anywhere from say 500 to 1,000 years ago. So she was looking. She was, you know, looking for more information that was going to help her understand her history. But she knew that she was going to get results that were going to indicate that her entire ancestry were, was from um, the British Isles and mainly from Ireland. So she's, you know, fully understands herself to be Irish American. She's raised that way with all the ethnic identity, the the holidays, the um, you know, the Catholic school, the Catholic um, church attendance, you know, the the large Irish Catholic family. All that is sort of um, deep in her identity. Um, and what what happens when she tests is that she gets this surprise. Um, her pie chart is only half British Isles, and the other half indicates that she is um, Ashkenazi Jewish, which is, you know, Jews from Central and Eastern Europe who have a genetic signature, if you will, that looks different from somebody who comes from um, Ireland. And at first she thinks, well, this, you know, this can't be, I know my family history, I've done the genealogy, so it must be that the company, like, isn't really ready for prime time. And in fact, she was testing with Ancestry and they were pretty new to the DNA game at the time. They, in fact, their test was still in beta mode. So it was, it was being tested at the time. It wasn't really, you know, available to the public. And so it was understandable that her reaction was um, they must have gotten it wrong. But um, when she started to investigate and she tested it at another company, 23andMe, she was able to confirm fairly quickly that they weren't wrong. What's interesting about Alice's story, in addition to the fact that, you know, it's just this long um, kind of journey for her that involves a great deal of, of methodical analysis, is that she um, she contains, you know, she her story contains other stories within it. Um, and by that, I mean, she had to go through all the possible explanations for that half unexpected ancestry and she had to start with the most likely explanation and she had to methodically eliminate theory after theory. So the first theory that she starts with is the possibility that she's not genetically related to her dad, which would have been like the likeliest explanation if you just look at it from a statistical point of view. And, and Alice is um, so um, smart and analytical. She's always thinking about the statistics, right? She's this um, warm, funny, fascinating woman, and she's just got a great eye for, um, for technical analysis. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, this this phenomenon of not being related to your dad, it's one of the most common types of DNA surprises that people get. Um, it's called an NPE for non-paternity event or not parent expected. Um, and um, it would have made sense as an explanation, but it wasn't true in her case. She was able to eliminate that. Um, she was able to eliminate the possibility that she was adopted. Um, she was able to know that she was not donor conceived, which could have also been an explanation for her circumstances and certainly um, would have made sense given her age if she hadn't been told because um, you know, donor conception was something that was, that was much more stigmatized in the past um, and children were often not told um, if they were brought into the world that way. Um, and her final theory that she was able to eliminate was the possibility that she had hidden genetic ancestry. So, you know, that perhaps her ancestors were Jews who converted or assimilated their way out of identity. And that is another phenomenon that you see people experiencing in this DNA age. So um, what I love about her story is that at every step of the way, as you're following the thread of Alice and she's like considering a theory, um, it gives me the opportunity to then go and explore what it does look like to discover the other product of a non-paternity event, right? Um, and some of those stories are stories that came to me by way of email after I had written that Washington Post story back in 2017 that I mentioned earlier. And some of them are ones that I reported my way to. Um, but I wanted to tell these kind of very um, you know, close up um, you know, stories of, of actual consumers. These are not you know, famous people. These are not celebrities. These are just Americans who are walking around um, who, you know, maybe in most cases um, really weren't prepared for the fact that they were asking as profound a question as they were, right? They could not know the implications of the question they were asking when they spit into a vial. Um, and that is, and, and even now they, um, they sometimes are still in the act of kind of processing the news. Um, that they discovered through through this technology. Uh, you mentioned that the NPEs, uh, non-paternity events, are not parent expected. 
are fairly common. How often do they come up? It's such a dramatic reveal for people to have to deal with. It's it's probably somewhere between one and two percent of the population, possibly closer to two. Um, and those numbers are a bit hard to come by um, because there's different studies and it kind of depends on um, you know what country and what community is in what time period is being studied. Um, mm -hmm. I did some interviews with genetic genealogists who are people who um, work you know looking at um, you know kind of putting together DNA information with genealogical research to understand um, both, you know, the family and to help people find their genetic relatives um, in some cases. Um, and I interviewed um, population geneticists um, and I tried to get a handle on how common this is. Certainly, if you take just um, non-paternity events and one of the mo other most common surprises, which is um, the discovery that you have, like say a sibling or a half sibling that you didn't know about, um, you know, perhaps your father had, uh, you know, a child before he was married to your mom or um, he had a relationship outside the marriage and he had a child, um, situations like mm -hmm. that. That is um, conservatively, um, conservatively in the low single digits, um, which would put us at well over a million people um, who've tested themselves and discovered something like this. But, but the true phenomenon is much bigger um, because, of course, the true phenomenon involves many other scenarios, right? Um, including donor conception and adoption. Um, and it's also the fact that when you test and you make a discovery, um, say you discover you're not related to your dad, that is not a, an epiphany that is limited to you, right? That is a revelation that plays out in your relationship with dad. If you decide to go to him and say, hey, um, it, it plays out with mom. It has mm -hmm. potential repercussions for their marriage. Um, it has implications for your siblings who you're now newly discovering are actually genetically half siblings to you. Um, and now also, in addition to that, there is some um, somebody, a stranger, say two states away, who has now you are learning contributed half of your genetic material. Right. And now you have to think about whether to reach out to that man, which is a whole topic in and of itself, an incredibly fraught um, and complex topic. Right. How do you reach out to your genetic father? And it has implications then for his relationship with his wife, potentially, right? And his children, who are people you have never met or heard of, but now you are discovering that they are your half siblings and you may wanna reach out and potentially um, look into having a relationship with all of them. So each you know, discovery ref easily refracts across eight, up to eight to 10 people. Um, and so you're really looking at millions of Americans who are rethinking their families in this moment. Yeah, no, it truly is uh, fascinating. And you mentioned that it can be so life altering and profoundly revealing for things. But at the same time, this is something that we give people for holidays and birthdays. And it's a curious little gift that would be something fun to do. How do, as a society, do we balance that dichotomy? Yeah, I mean, that's that's one of the things that's so interested me is this idea that, you know, we go into it with um, a certain set of expectations in a sense that it's a relatively low investment. Um, if you look at the history of this technology, it was originally uh, a product for genealogical hobbyists. It was created, the first company in the US was created by a genealogist who was trying to answer a very specific genealogical question in his own family. and figured out that this would be the way to answer the question for himself and then thought, and maybe I'll market this to other people, right? Um, and that was back in 2000. So that was 21 years ago that that mm -hmm. company sent out its first test kits. And the first 10 years of the industry, you know, the, the growth cur curve would, you know, would not look terribly impressive. Um, there's a change when something called autosomal DNA testing comes on the scene. So the original kinds of DNA testing is much different. It's, it's, it's cruder, it's more expensive, it's giving you different kinds of results that are less helpful for family history research. Um, it's, it's access to your ancient origins. So, um, but autosomal comes along about a decade ago, depending on the company. Uh, and that, that is the, um, that's the test that's gonna give you that ethnicity estimate, it's gonna give you those immediate relatives on both sides. And you mm -hmm. see the slope of sales start to go up gradually. And then Ancestry gets in on the scene. They put a lot of money behind advertising, 200 million in two years. 
Um, and then the slope just absolutely takes off. And it goes out of the realm of the, the genealogical hobbyists, right? And it also enters the realm of the casual consumer. And these are people who are like, well, it's, you know, it's on sale for 69 bucks. It's normally 99 bucks. I'm just going to get it. Or they're like, I'm going to give this as a gift to the person in my life who already has everything, right? That's how I got my first DNA kit. I got it from my dad. Um, and so they're not, they're engaging with it in the context of, of entertainment. And you see the ads and they're like, discover your family history, you know, um, you look, get closer to your family, find out how Italian you are. Um, and that sort of implies that you're going to get results that are going to come with a certain measure of you know, emotional, psychological remove, right? It's just going to enrich your understanding, but it's not going to disrupt it. And, and that is true for many, many people. You know, the majority of people are not getting these sort of massive changes. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, the, the significant minority of people who are, are often unprepared. Um, and, and that's part of what interests me is this idea that, you know, you could engage in a casual technology expecting one thing and come out with your life changed at the end. And then, and then what is that like, right? Because I think it's a really interesting moment for us as human beings to suddenly have access so cheaply and so easily to information about our own DNA. So what does that moment look like um, on mm -hmm. an individual level, right? That's, that's fascinating to me. Yeah. And uh, you uh, mentioned in your book that 35 million Americans at this point have taken a home DNA test, reaching kind of a tipping point for America. Where do we go from here? What are the implications of that much data out there? Yeah. So I'll update those numbers because they keep going up. Right. So it's it's 37 DNA test kits sold at this point. Um, and yeah, the majority of them are Americans. Um, and that means that there's a kind of a saturation at this point um, because at least 15% of adult Americans have done a recreational DNA test. Um, some of us more than one. I've done three, right? Um, and that means that people who are not in the database but are related to me because we share overlapping genetic segments are potentially affected by this technology, even though they never chose to test. Um, and, you know, that means that, you know, my decision to test could have implications for someone else's understanding of their family, um, their parents, their health, um, and their ancestry, even though, again, they've never tested themselves. So mm -hmm. increasingly, this is not something where you can opt out. Um, and and, 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 you know, and that means that um, that we all kind of have to grapple with, you know, with this, the meaning of this technology um, logistically. And also, I would argue um, for kind of existential reasons. So I'll back up and talk about the logistics. And then I want to talk about the bigger meaning. Um, logistically, let's say I have a brother who conceived a child and didn't know it in high school, right? He, he mm -hmm. and his girlfriend, his girlfriend got pregnant, he didn't know, and now it's 30 years later and that child has grown up and that child wants to know her um, genetic father's identity. She's never been able to find it out. And so she does a DNA test. Now, my brother is not on the databases. He's never tested, but I have. That decision to test means that that child can reach out and contact me, or she can simply see me listed as her genetic aunt. Um, and from that information, even if she never reaches out to me and asks me my brother's name, she can probably figure it out because, you know, my name's on there. I left uh, significant digital breadcrumbs about myself um, everywhere, right? And she can look me up and she can find out who my brother is. Maybe I have more than one. Maybe then she sends two brothers a letter and she says, hi, I believe one of you is my genetic dad. Um, but but you know, even more dramatic than that, I don't need to be the sister of the man in question in order to make him identifiable through my decision to test. I could be his first cousin, his second cousin, even from third cousins, um, this, this can be discovered. So on a practical level, you know, most um, uh, you know, white Europeans of European, white Americans of European descent are represented in these databases, the vast majority of them, again, whether or not they've tested. So. Mm -hmm. 
So, right. So it's something to think about even, you know, even, in, you know, even in situations where you consider yourself to, to, um, you know, to be kind of um, apart from it and unaffected by it. On an existential level, I think it's important to think about this technology because, um, because what, you know, the interviews that I've done with people um, grappling with questions about their identity, their understanding of ethnicity, their, their questions about the relative influences of nature versus nurture and who are they really, these are all things that come up in a really dramatic way when you test. These are like age old human questions, right? Like they're fascinating things we've always thought about. You know, people wonder who, who would I have been if I had been raised by that family across the street? Like what is the essential me, right? And what are the relative influences of the way I was raised versus like how, what my genes contributed? These are like, these are these are things that we've always thought about but maybe you thought about them because you read a book on you know philosophy or science um dna testing makes it really really personal to you and the stories i've heard from people about you know the ways they've kind of reprocessed their lives and rethought about those relative influences of nature and nurture suggests to me that this is a moment when you know we are really grappling with the power of biology versus the power of all the other kinds of external influences that shape us so i think it's fascinating you know even if you've never tested also because of the questions that it raises very true now you talked about uh, the impact that it has on an individual and trying to go through that experience and come to terms with it with that psychological transformation that people go through is it related primarily to those surprise revelations or is it a larger longer process what i found is you know people you know it, go, it goes on <laughs> Right. So mm -hmm. I, I would I would interview somebody if they reached out to me, say, in 2017, I would I would email with them and then maybe I would set up a phone call with them a few months later. And then I would talk to them again six months later and then I would talk to them again a year later and then maybe again six months later when I was like fact checking the book. And I, I found that that things would change. The landscape of understanding would change. It might change in response to, um, you know, they reached out to genetic kin and um, and they were embraced or they were rejected or they were at first given a lukewarm reception and then then people gradually warmed and it gave them access to understanding more about the family and that deepened their appreciation for knowing. You know, I, people told me that they would wake up in the middle of the night and they would think, oh, this is this this is the significance. This is the explanation for that thing that my mother offhandedly said to me when I was six years old that never made any sense and that I thought I had forgotten, right? It's almost right. like you're looking through the book of your life and you're putting asterisks next to it, little memories and the asterisks stand for, in light of this new knowledge, that I, I'm interpreting that event completely differently. So there's a whole psychological process that seems to take place, right? And, and, it, and it kind of goes on and on and it might go on I don't know for the rest of a person's life right i we kind of don't know because the first people who got these revelations got them you know started getting them with really within the last decade but certainly for people that i've talked to this is not something that kind of is over quickly it's something that um that deepens and continues you mentioned that home dna uh testing has been well represented among american of european ancestry caucasians of how does it affect some communities more than others? You mentioned those that are donor conceived or adopted. Yeah, so, I mean, you know, there's a lot of really fascinating stories in the ways that different um, communities have been able to use DNA testing to, to find genetic kin and to find themselves. And two of those main groups have been folks who are adopted and folks who are donor conceived. Um, you know, in many states, people who are adopted do not have access to their original birth certificates, which would give them the names of their birth parents. Uh, and that information is really important to a lot of people. It's, it's access to information about your medical history, your family's medical history, but it's, it's also access to identity. It's access to roots. Um, and not having that information meant that in the past, people who were adopted, if they really wanted to know might have had to hire a private investigator and that private investigator might have worked for years to discover the identity of say a birth mother and might not have been successful um and even you know as as little as 
you know, six, seven years ago if you did a DNA test because the databases were relatively small, you could expect to find only distant cousins. So say maybe just fourth cousins and, and more distant. And, and figuring out the identity of your birth mom from a fourth cousin is extremely difficult. And they would say back then that if you could find a second cousin in the databases, that was like the, um, you know, the pot at the end of the rainbow. From a second cousin, you could do the research to figure out your birth mother's identity, right? Whether, you know, she's not in the database, you could um, use genetic genealogy techniques to do family history research to, you know, trace backwards in time and then come back down using reverse genealogy um, to kind of, you know, figure out her identity or maybe one of a set of sisters who could potentially be your birth mother. Nowadays, mm -hmm. The databases are massive, right? The biggest database belongs to Ancestry. I think there are 18, 19 million people now. From that kind of a database, people are easily getting much closer hits, you know, aunt, first cousin, even half sibling. And from that kind of information, it is so much easier um, to figure out the identity of your birth parents. And same goes for the people who are donor conceived. You know, many people want to know the identity of their sperm dad for a variety of reasons, or they may want to know if they have half siblings out there. Um, and they're able to discover that. They're also able to discover, um, you know, maybe something they hadn't known before, they hadn't known close up, which is that there are no limits on the number of um, children that one donor father can conceive in the United States. So because of DNA and because of the process of discovery that it allows, people are discovering in some cases that they have between 100 and 200 half siblings through the same donor father. And those situations are really complicated, right? Um, because people have to then struggle with even the language for those relationships, right? Do you consider each one of those people a sibling? Do you forge relationships with each one of those people? What do you call your donor father? And that decision can be very personal. It can be very um, dependent on your your own relationship with your, you know, your your father, the man who raised you. Um, so these are really profound questions that you know, you know, they existed already, I guess, because because people people had these siblings, but they did not know that they had them. And so what right. you see that in that instance is a process of one technology kind of uncovering the practices or revealing, you know, the practices of another technology for people. And then, you know, this process of, you know, rediscovering these modern, kind of modern sprawling genetic networks that, you know, are they family? Are they not family? How close do you want to be to these people? Um, people are grappling with this right now. It just really, truly is incredible. There are so many stories out there. And we've seen dramatic implications in news and dramatized stories of what people are facing. Now, uh, one of the most famous ones in recent history is the use of genetic databases for solving cold case murders, such as the Golden State Killer. Uh, what are the ethical and legal ramifications of using DNA testing results to solve crimes. Um, the mm -hmm. Golden State Killer was arrested in the spring of, of 2018. Um, and you know what's interesting about the means by which they found the Golden State Killer, um, you know, was what was new about it. I mean, um, law enforcement has always had DNA databases, but they are very, very different from DNA databases that exist for genealogical research. Um, and and they're also, you know, so so that was one thing that they had never had access to before. And the in the databases that they have access to traditionally in the past could not yield the kind of results because of the DNA that's being studied, could not yield the kind of results and the process for um, you know, familial DNA searching. So figuring out um, you know, an unidentified say um, criminal's identity, you know, figuring that out based on third cousin matches, right? That was never going to happen in CODIS, which is the, the, the colloquial term for the, for the law enforcement system set up of, of databases that exist. About how the Golden State Killer case was solved is that the techniques that were used already were out there. 
they were already being used on behalf of people who are adopted and and the search angels who work with them. Search angels are usually volunteers who who help people figure out their genetic kin. So this is going back to say 2011, that um, that people in the adopted community pioneered these techniques so that they could figure out the identity of their birth parents. So what was new was the application of these techniques in a completely different context, and that was. Um, so that was a really big deal and kind of led to a big outcry between um, privacy, um, you know, people who are advocates of privacy and civil liberties on the one side and um, advocates of public safety and arresting, you know, um, in many cases, serial killers, uh, you know, murderers and rapists like on the other, right? You know, what is the proper use of um, information that was really gathered so that people could understand their family history? And, and is it fair for, um, you know, my DNA to be used to um, arrest a third cousin? Um, you know, maybe someone I've never met. Is it fair to me? Is it fair to them? Maybe I'm okay with it. Um, you know, because I don't know them and I want I want someone who's done a terrible crime to get off the street, but the legal, the kind of legal implications of it haven't really played out that much because it hasn't been robustly tested in a court yet, hasn't been, um, there haven't been a defense lawyers who have really, uh, except for I think one instance, really gone and tried to um, push back on this kind of use. So, it's in some ways a kind of an unformed legal territory, but on the other hand, there have been convictions based on this. Um, you know, there have been um, many, many cases solved this way at this point, um, probably 200 by the estimate of one of the major um, investigative genetic genealogists who's using this technique. So, you know, it, it's interesting to see that even as the privacy implications are still being debated, the technique is being used. Um, the polling that I've I've seen from Amer Americans suggests that most Americans are okay with this as long as it's being used for the most violent kinds of crimes. The concern I think comes where there's a lack of regulation and so there are people who are concerned about a slippery slope and saying there should be guardrails around this you know there should be rules about when they can use it and when they can't and at the moment we don't mm -hmm. have really stringent rules in place okay now with that culture clash between uh privacy and transparency where do you see that going in the next five to ten years yeah so i mean it, it really is a culture clash, right? Because, um, in, and in some ways, it's it's a culture clash between past and present. Um, you know, when when a person tests and they find out, for instance, um, you know, that they're that they're not genetically related to their dad, or that they have a, a much older half sister, for instance, through mm -hmm. um, you know previous relationship that one of their parents had. Um, you know, there is sometimes a tendency to go to the parents and say, like, why didn't you tell me? This is a really big deal, right? Um, and I don't, and I don't, maybe I don't trust you so much anymore that you didn't tell me, right? Um, and and what they're bumping up against is, um, you know, they're they have a desire to know who they am are and and how their family is formulated to understand truly their own roots to understand truly sort of like what their family of origin is and where they came from and and the backstory of it, right? Um, and that's so that's a desire for self-knowledge and for knowing who you truly are, right? And they're bumping mm -hmm. up against privacy, right? The privacy interests of an older generation that is culturally very different. So decisions made about keeping the birth of a child secret or the circumstances of the child's paternity a secret, those were decisions made six, sometimes 60, 70 years ago in totally different cultural circumstances, right? Um, a single mother could have been stigmatized. A child who came into the world by way of donor conception could have been stigmatized. People were making decisions based on survival in some cases, right? Or a desire not to be ostracized or a desire not to be divorced with all that would come with it in terms of you know, loss of income and, and perhaps um, ostracization from the community. So it's hard to judge past practices. I mean, certainly there are past practices that we can say were wholly bad, but many of these circumstances are much more gray on an individual family level, right? Um, and um, that's where it gets kind of complicated is between my right to know who I am and your desire to keep, you know, keep your privacy about, about you know, um, how many relationships you had at a particular time, right, for instance. Um, and what I've found is that, you know, the decision to keep a secret 
um, you might assume, you know, a secret, the decision to keep a secret in 1962, you might update it by the 90s when the culture around it has changed. But no, secrets have an inertia. They, they remain suspended in amber as the decades go by. And it becomes perhaps increasingly difficult to go to your child and say, uh, I have to, you know, you're 55 now, I have to tell you something really important about how you came into the world. So these moments, these moments where people are spitting into tubes, they're really forcing the issue and they're forcing really difficult conversations. Um, ultimately, who's to say it may be that we are better off, right? Um, certainly the many people who have tested and discovered something surprising about themselves, even when it's been painful, have told me that they are glad to know. The vast majority are glad to know because it's the truth. But there's no question that we're going through a kind of a painful process right now. Um, a painful process of genetic reckoning. And when you have a, a family narrative like that, that collides with the facts of the history and is revealed, that's got to be a really powerful and really painful experience for everybody involved. Now, uh, you mentioned that a lot of um, Caucasian Americans have been uh, tested. We have a good representation of the population through home uh, DNA testing. What did your research reveal about the implications of testing for uh, Black, Indigenous, and people of color, especially the African-American community, given the history of slavery? Yeah, so um, historically, white, Europe, white Americans of European descent are better represented in these databases, both, both for historical reasons and um, because, because they are the people who are most inclined to test. Um, and so there is a problem with undersampling communities, including African-American communities, including um, Latinx communities, you know, they're not as well represented, which means um, potentially there are issues when it comes to our understanding of health-related issues in genetics. And in the context of DNA testing for ancestry purposes, it means that those people, when they test, are not getting such granular results. So they're not like able to say, you know, you're from exactly this area. They're going to potentially give you like a much broader region that you're from, um, you know, in terms of your roots. So that's one. That's one half of of the you know the answer. But there's another part of an answer to your question, which I think is really fascinating, and that is that DNA has given um, family researchers access to information about the lives of their enslaved ancestors and their ancestors before they were enslaved that paper records would never have given them because they didn't have paper records. I mean, you know, if you think about just the history of, um, of genealogical records, you know, records in general tend to go hand in hand with, um, you know, the people who are in control, the people who are in power, right? They tend to be literate, they, they have records that are preserved, they're not burned down, um, you know, they have access to paper. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. All the, you know, people who are affected by war, migration, um, you know, illiteracy, um, you know, all those things are going to make them less likely to be recorded in, um, in the genealogical history books. So, just as an example of that, like if you are um, African American and you're and you're researching your enslaved ancestors, and you're going back and you're going back, you're following, uh, you know, a certain person or a certain surname, you're going to slam into a brick wall um, if you try to go back before 1870 in the federal census potentially, because the federal census um, before 1870 didn't record the names of people who were enslaved; they were just tick marks in a box. So how do you research those people? Uh, and and so one of the things that I wanted to um, look at in the book was, you know, in particular how African American genealogists are using DNA. Um, and I found a man who told me this, you know, incredible story of how he was able to research back various branches of the family before they were brought over in the transatlantic um, slave trade. And in particular, um, you know, he did this through the ethnicity estimates, but also through finding DNA cousins. And he was able to find a modern day. Um, genetic cousin who lives in Africa. And that man was connected to him through people who, you know, were pre-slave trade, right? And so that man was able to say to him, um, 
you know, here's who our people are, not just on a regional level, but this is the community that they came from. And then this genealogist was able to look up this community of people, you know, there's papers written about them, um, you know, there's information that you can find online, understand their language, their food, their customs, and it got him much closer to understanding this particular branch of his family and where they came from before they were affected by the slave trade. So that is a kind of amazing story. It does sound like it. And you mentioned that uh, there aren't as many tests available and so the results are a little bit more spotty. When you take a test, can you go back three to five years later and see if there are new results or do you have to take a new test? You can. So there's two pieces of information you're getting and they're both going to be, they're both worth looking at more than once for different reasons. So your genetic relatives are of course going to grow with each new person that tests who is related to you. So you're going to test and then you come back a year later, you might have many, many more genetic relatives, right? Relative matching is a really reliable science. So, you know, if they're showing you that you're closely related to someone, they may not be able to predict the exact nature of the relationship, but they can predict how much overlapping DNA you and that person share. So you can trust that. Um, ethnicity estimates are a little different. They are estimates. And you have to take them with a grain of salt because they rely on two key pieces of information that differ from company to company. So one is they have these reference populations and those are people who, whose DNA they have studied. And those people are meant to stand in for an entire say region or country. So they might have hundreds or even thousands of people meant to stand in for all of um, Norway. And then they have an algorithm for crunching, for crunching that data. And because both of those differ, um, the estimates are going to differ. And in addition to that, it can be really hard to distinguish between French DNA and German DNA, right? These are populations that didn't have a bright line between them, right? It wasn't as if there was a fence and they couldn't intermarry. Um, they were affected by, you know, nation states changing and borders shifting, by by migration, by war, all these reasons why. Um, you know, you can't always tell somebody over here from somebody who lived, you know, 100 miles away in what is now a, a different country. <laughs> so, you know, a lot of it is a grain of salt. And sometimes in addition to that, there is something they just call background noise, where they'll pick up something at some small percentage of something. And later on, their algorithm will get better at reading and it'll disappear. So for a short period of time, um, maybe a year or so, um, one of the companies was telling me I was 1% Korean and I was fascinated and I thought, goodness, how did, you know, how did this Korean ancestor intersect with all my other ancestors? And I was trying to imagine it. Um, mm -hmm. And then over time, it was downgraded to 0.1% South Asian. And I thought, oh, uh, okay. And then at the time I was reporting the book. So I got on the phone with one of the scientists for the company and I said, like, what's going on here? And he said, that's background noise. It's going to go away. And lo and behold, within a few months it had gone and I was no longer that. So it's not that my DNA changed, right? It's that the company got better at reading it. And so, yes, if you've tested once, you know, you won't have to test again in order to get those updated ethnicity estimates and they're well worth looking at. Okay. Now you mentioned that uh, your father was the first one to get you a DNA test. What was that experience like the first time you guys sat down and went through those results? It's been amazing. Like it's been kind of an ongoing um, process, I have to say. Um, he got me one test, then I tested at another company, then I tested at another company, then he joined me in that database. So, um, you know, and we found all. I mean, it was it was pretty amazing. We found um, his his my dad's um, grandmother had immigrated from emigrated from Sweden as a teenager in the 1890s. You know, he was close with her. He didn't know a lot about her life back in Sweden, um, but you know she helped raise him, and he he loved her very much. Um, and you know she's no longer alive. I never met her, my great grandmother. But through DNA, we were able to find that my dad had a second cousin living in Sweden, who, who was connected to him through this great grandmother, my mm -hmm. my great grandmother's grandmother. And you know that was pretty amazing. So we still reached out to um, the relative that we found. We started talking. Um, she turned out was a genealogist, had done a ton of research, and we decided to go to Sweden and meet her. 
you know, she wanted to share the family history with us. Um, and we wanted to see it all. And we wanted to see where my dad's grandmother had grown up. So we were able to do that. And we were able to like connect with these cousins. We were able to see like the farmhouse where the, the foundations of the farmhouse where my gra my dad's grandmother had grown up, the church she attended, the school that she attended. Mm -hmm. uh, it was incredible immediacy, right? And these are people we would not have found if not for DNA. The paper records didn't indicate um, that we were related to them because there was kind of a break in the line, a break in the genealogical line. Um, so what was remarkable to me about that was, you know, we, we think of the 1890s as an extremely long time ago, and indeed they were, right? I mean, think of all the technology we have now that we didn't have then. We have radio, we have cars and TV, right? We're, we're very, very modern. Um, on the other hand, you know, my dad has a living second cousin in Sweden, right? And to meet her and to realize that that's not that distant of a connection, and maybe the 1890s aren't that long ago, right? Um, mm -hmm. That made me realize how much the past like lives on in us and shapes us, even if we don't know it. That immediacy of the past is the lesson that I heard over and over when I interviewed people for the lost family and that I found to be true in my own experience that the past doesn't go away, right? It's in ourselves, it's living in us. Um, and, you know, if you look, <laughs> if you look, you will see, you know, how it's how it's been shaping you. Yeah, when you talk about uh, the past, we often look at 100 or 200 years, but really there are thousands of years of human uh, evolution and things. And so it really is incredible and yeah. reclaim a part of that past and the discussion in unity, in a sense, we're reclaiming that. Yeah. With American society and changes that have happened over time in the last 50 years, you said that there were some very specific cultural implications 50, 60, 70 years ago. As American definitions of family change, what are the implications through home DNA testing about how we continue to think of family? Yeah, that's a really good question. You know, I think that, well, I would ask this question of people as I was interviewing them, right? Um, and it, it certainly depends on the person. And I would say, you know, each person gets to define for themselves what relationships they want to honor. Um, and what terms they want to use, right? Like what, what is the language for the man who contributed half your genetic material if you already have a dad? And what and, and how close do you want to be to him, right? And some of that's going to depend on you and some of that's going to depend on him. But what I found was people resolve these questions with, for the most part, a great deal of emotional nuance. Um, not always, you know, but enough that it gave me kind of hope that potentially we're moving past this kind of binary approach to thinking about family. I mean, we, we've always known that family is not just genetics, of course, but I don't think as many people have had to confront that on a personal level as they do now because of DNA testing, right? right. Um, and so, you know, I found that people, this question of like nature versus nurture, right? And, and people ask it in the context of family and they ask it in the context of things like ethnicity and race that's that's a you know a black and white question and it invites a kind of a ranking of which is better which is more important mm -hmm. um and you know one of the men i interviewed told me you know that that is like the dumbest question in the world right he was like for we may lack the language for two mothers for instance right the woman who raised you and is your mom and your birth mom we may lack the words for, to distinguish between those two relationships or what to call but those are limitations of language not limitations of the heart the heart can contain both and i found that to be true you know people said you know there's a term from improvisational comedy it's like not no or but it's yes and um, when you're playing off of someone else and people would say yes and they would say okay yes and when they could um now in fairness that's the case for the people that i refer to in the lost family as seekers right the people who discover something about themselves uh, about their own genetic origins. It's not always true for the people on the other side um, because they have families that may feel threatened by the revelation of somebody coming in and in and they may feel that in order to preserve those primary relationships with their um, spouses and children that they have to cut off a relationship with this new this new stranger who's actually their genetic child, for instance, coming into their lives. 
So it can mm -hmm. really vary depending on the perspective of the person and their relationship to, if there's a secret at the heart of the revelation, their relationship to the secret, um, how much shame and guilt there is about that old secret. So what advice do you have for people who are thinking about uh, taking a home DNA test? Yeah, so good question. You know, I used to say, like a few years ago, I used to say, it's important that you know that when you take a test, there's these kind of advisories that they give you that say you may expect, you know, discover unexpected things about your family that you're not prepared for, you're not expecting. So just, you know, here's here's a heads up about that. And all the companies give that advisory. Um, so I used to say, you know, I used to say, just pay attention um, to that. And, and I still think that's true. I think it's important that you know what you're getting into, that you you take a deep breath and you say, am I ready to delve into this right now? Because you don't actually know the question that you're asking. Like you might be asking a question about one very specific thing. Am I really, you know, a quarter Italian? Was my grandfather really Italian, right? You're asking one question over here. And by dint of the fact that you're spitting into a vial, you're getting the answer to a question you never asked, right? Right. So, and, and you don't know how you're going to feel about that till you've got take you, you it's just mind blowing right you don't know how what you're going to find or how you're going to feel so it's kind of a um an exercise in crazy making to imagine future scenarios when you don't know what those future scenarios would be so i do think it's important that people consider like am i ready to get into this right now is there an emotional weight to this maybe i wait on the other hand also at the same time you know people are discovering things without having ever tested, you know, um, you know, a woman takes a test, she discovers her mother was donor conceived, right? Her mother's never tested, but she figures it out based on her own results. Does she then go tell her mother, right? Does she not? These are almost, you know, these are bioethical quandaries that individual human beings are dealing with, like people who are don't have PhDs in bioethics, right? And they have to, and they have to sort of confront what they're going to do in their own lives. So because mm -hmm. of that, um, because, because, because it doesn't, you know, it's not dependent on you testing in order to potentially to find out something important about your roots, your family, yourself. Um, I also think that this is advice that should be for the older generation, right? The generation of secret keepers, um, which is that if you know something, if you, if you know about something having to do with your child's genetic origins that you never told them, this might be the moment to think about telling them before they test in the tube, because it is far better to uh, it's far better to find out from somebody you love than than as a result of having done a DNA test and then have to go to your parents if they're if they're alive and say, um, you know, why didn't you tell me? So you can sort of control the message a little bit better. And also, you know, if the person tests, your child tests when you're no longer alive and ready to there to explain the context for, you know, mm -hmm. these unexpected results, that's very difficult for them to deal with it. And, and they'll have questions they'll never be able um, to have answered. And I write some of those stories in the book and they're very moving and people get very frustrated that they're not, you know, it's, it's these mysteries that they, they can never answer. So for those reasons, I would say this may be the moment to think about um, having that talk with your child. And this is a time where people are finding new ways to connect and to talk about uh, different things that we've never discussed before. And you mentioned that we're 21 years into the field of home genetic testing. And last year was such an incredible year and it's brought so many changes around the world and so many changes to different industries. How has the field of home DNA testing been impacted? So in a couple of different ways. Um, on the one hand, you know, the last few years, we've seen somewhat of a slowdown in the industry that was pre-pandemic. Um, and that may have had to do with um, privacy concerns by consumers. And it may also have been related to, certainly was related to the fact that a lot of the people who were gonna do um, DNA testing for family history research you know, have done it at this point. So, you know, the companies are finding they have to kind of expand beyond that pool. So that's one piece of it. That's pre-pandemic. But then there's some evidence suggesting that during the pandemic, there has been more of a desire to get to know family um, through genealogy and DNA because the pandemic has made us sort of question those relationships that are closest to us, not question them, but, but want to know more about them, right? And so for people who maybe have always wanted to connect with a genetic parent they've never been able to identify or a long lost cousin or sibling, you know, for those people, the pandemic made them turn to genealogy and DNA more. 
So that's one interesting thing. Within the last um, four or five months, two of the biggest companies, Ancestry and 23andMe, have also um, had deals that have valued them in the multi-billion dollar range. Um, and 23andMe, which is um, announced that it's gonna go public in a deal valuing it at 3.5 billion recently, um, their uh, their founder, Anne Wojcicki, and, and 23andMe, I should say, you know, has always been known for health-related testing in addition to um, ancestry testing. Um, mm -hmm. So their founder, Anne Wojcicki, was saying recently that she thinks that the pandemic has proven um, that people are increasingly, you know, eager to turn to um, health-related innovations for, um, you know, in a proactive way, um, and that they're comfortable with um, engaging with these technologies in a virtual setting. And you know, if you think about um, just how much faith and hope is riding on science right now and scientific innovation to get us through that, that's sort of where she's that's where she's sort of putting all her um, emphasis right now. So 23andMe is going forward with this big deal to go public at this very moment when we are all thinking carefully about how much science can do for us. And I think she is, um, you know, 23andMe is hoping that they can um, pioneer more pharmaceutical innovations and other innovations that can help their consumers and then just like ordinary people who are not their consumers, um, you know, Get healthier. So I think you know you're seeing more emphasis from the company in terms of that, um, and you're just seeing sort of this space become increasingly interesting um, with these you know very big valuations. <laughs> well, thank you, and Libby, it's been wonderful talking with you. And I was reading the last family; it truly has some amazing stories in there. So I'm recommending to anybody to check it out because as you can see, we carry it in the library. Thank <laughs> and you so much. It's a pleasure to have you here today. Oh, thank you so, for having me, I really enjoyed it. If you would like to learn more about the library's genealogy resources, check out our website at mcldaz.org. Thank you for listening to Shelf Logic. Make sure to hit subscribe and share this podcast with your friends. Follow us on social media where we are at MCLDAZ.